When you hear the word parkour, what comes to mind? For me, it's that opening scene of the 2006 James Bond movie Casino Royale with those incredible stunts. Or the other one that comes to mind is the opening scene from the U.S. version of the show The Office, where Michael and Dwight and Andy are filming themselves doing hardcore parkour. But what doesn't jump to mind immediately is a 52-year-old woman doing parkour and teaching parkour. And now, maybe this has less to do with my innate ageist and sexist attitudes and more to do with my media-clouded versions of parkour. Either way, however familiar you are with parkour, I invite you to join me in re-examining this art through a new lens. Hello and welcome to the Over 50 Health and Wellness Show. I'm your host, Kevin English. I'm a certified personal trainer and nutrition coach, and my mission is to help you get into the best shape of your life, no matter your age, so you can show up in the second half of your life as the healthiest, strongest, most vital version of yourself. We have a great show for you today. Dr. Julie Angel is here, and she is going to share with us her parkour journey. But before we get to that, I want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Energy Bits. Energy Bits makes the purest chlorella and spirulina available on the market. Now, these two superfoods are the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet, and I personally take spirulina every morning for its antioxidants, its omega-3s, and the 40 vitamins and minerals to help improve my energy and focus, and I take their chlorella every evening for its super high chlorophyll, as well as its vitamins and minerals to help with my immune function, recovery, and gut health. I recommend starting out with their Vitality Bits. This is their 50-50 blend of spirulina and chlorella. If you want to learn more, head over to silveredgepartners.com and click on the Energy Bits icon. And because you're a listener of this podcast, you can save 20% off your purchase when you use the coupon code SILVEREDGE at checkout. Again, that's silveredgepartners.com and use coupon code SILVEREDGE. That's SILVEREDGE all run together at checkout to save 20%. Okay. Enough of that. Let's get on with today's show. My guest today is Dr. Julie Angel. Julie is an artist, a filmmaker, a cultural anthropologist, and author a movement coach, a brand ambassador for Merrill, and she has the distinction of earning the world's first PhD in parkour. Julie helps people overcome obstacles and rediscover their potential by finding a love of and meaning in movement. In this episode, Julie shares how she found herself out of shape in her mid-30s but fascinated with parkour and how her love and passion for human movement forever changed the arc of her life. I started our interview by asking Julie if she was active as a child. I grew up in the southwest of England, so I'm from Plymouth, and it was very normal that every weekend we would always go to the moors. So Dartmoor is a beautiful national park in the southwest of England, and there was just always kind of outside playtime. So it was always like you would kind of walk or trek up this kind of a, a tour, which is a, it's not a mountain or a hill, it's this kind of rocky enclave, which is kind of bit of a hill and so you know you would clamber up and 
and then I would just run down. <laughs> and you know, when you're a kid, your legs are just kind of you're at, you're at this momentum, and it's uncontrollable. But there's no real fear, and you just kind of do that. So I was exposed to a lot of a really beautiful nature. So the the coastline of Devon and Cornwall, Dartmoor National Park, and I just. I was kind of this mix of I loved sport and play and being active and I loved art. So I was either kind of drawing, watching TV or outside and we lived near some woods. So just just always getting dirty and moving around and, and playing and discovering things really. So a lot of that unstructured play, and I think a lot of us in that over 50 age bracket can appreciate that, right? That was pretty common in our day was, shoo, get out of the house, be back in time for dinner before dark, something like that, and often playing in the woods, etc. Now, you had mentioned sport. Were you playing any structured sports as a child? A little bit, yeah. So at kind of primary school, which is age 5 to, to 11, my favorite part of school was playtime. And then in the summer when we had sports day, as well and there's a sport i guess it's a sport called square ball <laughs> which i was i was captain of the square ball team and that that's and it was kind of fun and we would go and play different schools and things like that but nothing kind of that formal until i went to my next school when which was aged 11 to 16 and then another english sport girl sport called netball which is kind of basketball without the backboard but you don't dribble the ball you can only do two steps and you throw it's a very fluid fast game and i was captain of the netball team i became part of plymouth athletics club i was always into kind of the sprint the explosive stuff and there was still the play as well and the even that kind of structured organized sport was very it wasn't taken so seriously it was it was always there was always a lot of joy and it was never really about winning or did you get upset for this or that i was very much just like oh let's just turn up and because i could also see the angst amongst people who did take it really seriously and it didn't seem to serve them that well to be honest so yeah a little bit of the structure there and that carried on through the, those kind of schooling years till kind of age 16, really. And where, where do you go after that? So you've had this very, sounds like very active upbringing, and you describe it as a joyful upbringing. You've, you were, sounds like you were doing well in these sports. You were the captain of, uh, what did you say, square ball and netball. But you describe it as being a joyful experience. You don't have that pressure of, you know, winning or etc. cetera. Where, where do you go from there after school? Well, then it was interesting because so as you say, you know, I, I, I loved this and, and it was it was joyful and I did well at it. And and then at age 16, I, I left school and I went to college and I went to art college. And well, then I kind of like I just got really into the creative side as well. And then without making any conscious decision, I stopped all sports. I stopped or, or the games changed. The games became. Uh, about parties the games became about like I'm a, I'm a generation x british teenager i started drinking so you know age, and that, that kind of started at the end of school as well so it's quite normal in the uk and across europe you know that you know you're going to start drinking from age maybe like 15 16 so my weekends weren't filled with athletics meetings they were filled with fashion and parties and boys and all of those kind of distractions of a young woman's life and before i knew it like i just I wasn't moving and it was never a conscious choice. And it wasn't until nearly 20 years later that I looked back and kind of went, Oh God, yeah, I haven't done anything. And 
I was never kind of overweight or uh, so I was kind of like skinny fat. So, so, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of, there were no, no, no one ever really commented of, oh, well, you should move or you should work out. And, and my idea of like anyone going to a gym at that day was like, what am I a bouncer at a nightclub or something? Like why, why on earth would someone suggest something like that? Like it was, it was almost comical. Like, excuse me, like what, what kind of crazy talk is that? Like I'm, I'm into art, I'm into creativity, I'm into all of these kind of interesting things. So it just became a disconnect. But it, what was interesting is I think part of my identity still thought I was a mover, even though I hadn't done it. I was yeah. still drawn to nature. I was still drawn to being outside or, you know, going to the beach. I remember trying to learn how to surf one summer and no one told me like, okay, when you go down, you should like cover your head and I just remember getting hit by the board so many times I was like the surfing just gives me a headache like I'm not gonna <laughs> even though I love yeah. being in the water the water is actually my my kind of favorite movement environment so I was spending time in nature but it was less active it was less challenging and a lot of people around me in the southwest you know a lot of people surf a lot of people skate that you have this kind of nice outdoor culture but I just was then observing it rather than participating in it and nothing really changed in that until i then was introduced to parkour and okay, that so yeah let's let's pause for a second here because I, I just want to set the stage here so this is where the conversation takes a little turn right so you had mentioned you were very active as a child up through your teens and then went to college like many people do in our priority shift a lot of people that are active in high school going to college and they find other distractions to your point um, the partying and all of that fun stuff the social scene to it but you were also into art and exploring your creative side as well right and i think it's very interesting that you still thought of yourself as an athlete or an active person even though you said you're going to go about 20 years here where there's going to be this space where you're really going to be disconnected from your physical self a little bit and then you say <laughs> you discovered parkour. So before we go any further, let's define what is parkour. Yes. So parkour is a training methodology about how to overcome obstacles. So in the physical side, simply putting it, it's a kind of how can you get from point A to point B? And how you traverse that landscape is maybe you need to go over things or under things. So it's a kind of like a, rel a distant relative of the, you know, the military obstacle course. But the course can be anywhere. It can be when you're trekking through the woods. It can be in the urban environment where you have this kind of dense urban furniture of walls and railings. And that's where we see the more spectacular side and the more unusual side. Or, or like, oh, well, this is kind of like Tarzan in the city or Spider-Man or, or that kind of thing. So it became very popularized through stunt sequences and in commercials and films of, you know, the rooftop jumpers. So it's kind of like taking Dragon Ball Z and mixing in Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee's philosophy, combining it into this really unique recipe, essentially about how to overcome obstacles. But that can also mean the imagined ones, the mental ones, the emotional ones. So it's not a, a purely physical practice, but the physical side of it, when taken to the elite level, is spectacular. And it has redefined what we now know is possible for the body to do. And, and it involves this reimagining of your environment as well, because then 
the wall isn't just a wall. The wall is a launch pad to get you from A to B or underneath this or, and then you kind of get to challenge and see who you are in that moment of that. So it's a very fun practice on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's this very deep, emotional, transformative practice, which opens up the possibility that you get to see who you are because there's no equipment. It's just you and the environment. And it's very tactile. So all the excuses of like, yeah, but if I had some really good like soccer boots or if I had, oh, but so-and-so has this equipment and that obviously gives them an unfair advantage. And it's like, no, it's just you. So there's nowhere to hide. There's no team. You're the only one who can do the movement. And it's this constant dialogue with the environment of you reimagine it and and then you move through it. And then you get to see who you are through what you do and don't do as part of that process. So it's sometimes called free running as well. I love that description. I love the way you started that by saying it's overcoming obstacles. And I, of course, my mind immediately went to, of course, it's jumping and running and leaping over things that we're, we're used to seeing when we think of parkour, but that there's that emotional and maybe even spiritual element to it as well, that mental experience. And probably a lot of us are no parkour through. We've seen some videos on YouTube. Of course, there's the famous James Bond movie. I think it was Casino Royale that mm -hmm. opened up with that. I can't remember his name. The, the uh, Sebastian. Uh, Sebastian. That's it, Sebastian. Who, yeah, who does that insane opening sequence. Or some of us may know parkour from, I don't know if you've ever seen the Office episode, if you're familiar yes. with the, I love, the, I love show it. the Office, yeah. <laughs> parkour, it's Michael and Voight and Andy, yes. I guess, or I think the one of their episodes opens with parkour. So it's, you know, it certainly is, parkour has become a part of our vocabulary now and movement, but you had mentioned that, okay, so you're going to have this period where you're not very active. And then you said, then I discovered parkour. So we've, de we've defined what parkour is. How in the world did you discover parkour? What happened? So around about 2002 in the UK, I'm spending time in, in England, but I'm also spending time in Southern California with a friend of mine. And we're making a documentary called Chlorine. And this is about pool skaters. So people who go and find round bottom swimming pools or massive drainage pipes, and then they skateboard in them. So this is kind of, we were doing that just at the point where Dogtown and the Z-Boys won the Sundance Film Festival. So that kind of gave a boost to what we were doing. And so that isn't parkour at all, but it was really a kind of prelude to spending time with people who were reimagining their landscape, especially the, the concrete, the asphalt landscape. And reinterpreting it and having this mixture of creative, physical, unregulated practice, which was, it was really nice because I'd been working with artists all the time and it was like, oh yeah, these are, they're, they're artists, but there's a, a physicality to it. And then there was also this kind of implicit politics to it. And there was this rebellion to it. And there was this counterculture to it. And I felt very comfortable with all the kind of marginal characters that we were working with and, and doing that. So my, my kind of vision was very open to those who appreciate the, the most banal landscape. So my movement landscapes as a child, as I said, like, a, you know, the, the coast and Dartmoor in the southwest of England are, are stunning. They are beautiful. And the time I would spend in the urban landscape was just to go shopping. Like that was it. And now there's this introduction to this world of, oh, 
the concrete and the built is is also now a place of movement and joy and discovery and imagination and creativity. So all those kind of like my spider senses were kind of on alert to that. And then on TV in the UK, there was the BBC channel Ident. They made a short film called Rush Hour. And it's spectacular. And still to this day, when you watch Rush Hour, it's like, wow, it's it's really spectacular. And it shows a man called David Bell. And instead of traversing home in London at the end of the day with the rush hour traffic, he and you see this juxtaposition of people waiting at the traffic lights, people sat in their cars, there's gridlock, it's miserable. And instead he opens the window and he traverses home via the rooftops in this most majestic display of strength, coordination, athleticism, imagination, bravery. And it really, it sparked the whole, like people were talking about it, like, have you seen that BBC thing? Have you seen that? That's amazing. And there was a lot of publicity around it because people said, oh, well, it's special effects. Then it turned out, no, it's not. And it's like, okay, so there is Spider-Man? How is that possible? Because I'd never seen such a thing. And for people to be saying like, this isn't, you know, a special effect. And yet it wasn't kind of like a, a one-off stunt. And then time passes and then there's a little bit more parkour that kind of comes into the, the media landscape in the UK. And you start to see a few kind of media articles. And at this point, I'd finished making the, the film with my friend, the, the pool skating documentary. I was now living in London. And there was a, a documentary that was going to be on TV that I was really excited about called Jump London. And at the same time, I'd enrolled into an evening class to study visual anthropology. And visual anthropology is like documentary filmmaking with ethics and this long-term feedback loop because you share your work with your informants, the people you're researching and observing, and you kind of learn from them. And their feedback then influences how you represent them. So it's this kind of politics of representation of how one culture can learn from another culture and be influenced and share information. And then you as the artist are the translator. You make one world understandable to another world, but you are not the expert in that world. So it's a very humbling position to be in. So I'm in this kind of visual anthropology, London vibe. Parkour comes on the landscape, and I'm so excited about this program. And I watch it, and it's spectacular. And, and Mike Christie and the team who made it, they, they did something really amazing and really beautiful. And at the same time, I was watching it with my kind of anthropology eye, which is very different than a commercial television eye, and going like, but what is the everyday life like for someone who can do that? Because there were all these spectacular moments of the body, like leaping through the air and traversing these landscapes. And it's I think it was necessary that we needed to see that first. It, something needed to capture our attention and, and celebrate the spectacle of it. But what I was interested in was taking out the spectacle and seeing what was there, seeing what, what's the everyday of this. So fast forward a little bit. I'm, I'm loving visual anthropology. I'm now finding a, a framework to describe how I approach my filmmaking. So I, I really need to kind of take this further. So I started to look for a master's course in visual anthropology and I found two and then on talking to one of the the heads of the course and I was 
describing what I'd done with the pool skating documentary. And they said, well, that's kind of the equivalent to a master's, how, how you did that project. And how, have you ever thought of doing a PhD? And I was like, no, like I went to art school. I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. an academic. I don't sit and, you know, like read books and just write all the time. I'm, I'm kind of out in the field and creative and all that stuff. And then he basically said, well, you know, I'm starting this practice-based PhD documentary course and I think you'd be a great fit and is there anything you're really interested in and I was like well yes like I love this subject area of creativity movement imagination within the urban landscape because and it's unregulated so it's not like well you can join a club and you can do it on a Tuesday at seven o'clock in the evening it was like I'm a freedom freak individually as, as I kind of live and how I go through life and how I've designed my life so this kind of liberational aspect really was really pulling me. And so anyway, I ended up on this PhD course, really not knowing what I'd signed up for. <laughs> All I knew was I'm going to start researching parkour, but I was also going to research urban climbers and speed climbing and urban golf was a thing in London at the time. There was a lot of really funky stuff happening back in like 2004 in London. <laughs> And so I started to look for local parkour practitioners in London. I knew that there were, you know, there was this group in France and things were happening there, but my French wasn't good enough. I didn't have the money to go and live, like, base myself in France or, and this kind of visual anthropology approach is a long project. It's not kind of like, oh, let's go and film for four days or two weeks. It's like, you do it for a couple of years to really kind of, you you, you kind of go deep. So in the old days, it would, you know, be someone going off to, you know, the jungle and, yeah. the, you know, the, yeah. the hat. Like, so, but anthropology is just, you know, a celebration of difference and understanding culture. So that can happen anywhere in any place. So basically, I started documenting this very young and new parkour scene and participants in London. And I'm behind the camera. I'm 20 years older than everyone else. I'm not planning to do parkour. Like I'm, I'm an older woman in amongst this group of like 18, 19 year olds who are kind of natural athletes exploring themselves and parkour. Parkour is this kind of nebulous thing because there's no, there isn't YouTube at this point. Like this is even this is even before YouTube. This isn't like phone cameras. This isn't that time yet. And that all happened really, really quickly. And they were really struggling to understand parkour. They were they were just doing the best they could with the little snippets they could find on the internet and not speaking French and then all these kind of message boards and all of this kind of thing. But basically when you're around people who move, it makes you want to move. You kind of get itchy feet. But there were all these barriers to participation for me. And they invited me to move. And it was it was kind of like they were, oh, Julie, why don't you try that? Why don't you try that? And interestingly, like when they would do what they call precision jumps, so when you land, you, you jump from one thing to another, but you, you land, it's a very accurate landing. So this for me was like, well, this is me just like jumping from rock to rock when I was as, as a child. So there were some elements that were very familiar to me. And then there were others that were just like, oh, my God, no, can't, won't, never. Like that's just that's just not happening and also I didn't trust them they they weren't coaches like what they could do and how they would encourage each other had nothing to do with what they would do with a woman who's been sat down for 20 years who who was kind of scared of everything when when I tried so and then they created a class and I was like 
okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And even prior to that, there was actually one time we were filming and I was stood on this wall and I had the camera in my hand and I had to get to the other side of the wall. And there was a moment where I could choose, okay, do I put the camera down? And then I step down and then I climb up and I put the camera up and, and I kind of looked around and I thought, no one's looking at me. I'm just going to, I'm just going to make the jump. And I did. And then someone went, oh no, Julie did parkour. And I was like, no, no one's supposed to see me. Oh my God. <laughs> that was my kind of like, oh, first step. And then, and then I went to this class and my God, it, what was amazing is the things I thought I could do. Because in my mind, I didn't, I somehow didn't kind of think I'd lost anything <laughs> from, from like, okay, I'm 16 and I've stopped to like, I know I'm 36 or 38 and I start and then it's like, oh shit, I'm scared of everything. What do you mean? Like, okay, I've got a balance on that thing. It's only this high off the ground. Like, oh my God. And it was, it was a kind of really interesting, honest reality to go, huh, when did I become scared of everything? Because I'm having this like very interesting, you know, independent filmmaker life. I think I'm brave. I'm, I'm traveling the world. I'm doing all these projects. And yet ask me to like walk along a balance beam in a gym and I would have burst into tears and I go, what has happened? <laughs> so, you know, now I can reflect back and go, well, yeah, we're a lose it or, you, you know, use it or lose it system. Like that shouldn't be a great surprise. But like, I was shocked. I was surprised. I feel like nobody told me that suddenly I can't do this. And when there are things that you used to do with ease and then you're faced with like, oh my God, no can't work never it's like wow and then you realize like oh my god i didn't know that how i've been living has involved collecting fear i'm just like a great big onion with layers of fear wrapped around me day and night and i don't want to be that person but i am that person oh by the way i've got no physical strength either it <laughs> It was like, so the soreness I felt, and it's kind of comical. It's sort of known within the parkour world as well. A lot of people after their first session are like, I cannot walk down the stairs. I can't, like, when I sit on the toilet, even when I laugh, like, everything hurts. Everything hurts. And, and also this was kind of the early days. So people didn't really know even how to introduce parkour to someone like me. I was kind of an early guinea pig as well. You start to find things that resonate with you you start to take these baby steps like I realized like so okay I didn't really like jumping I didn't like vaulting couldn't climb anything and someone was like well isn't that what parkour is I was like no I like these weird little kind of balance challenges and like scramble underneath stuff and go around things and like oh like the, these weird like underbar things like oh I could do those I can do those really well and then you it just it just starts to build. And then at the beginning of parkour, everyone says, well, it's like, it's like a virus. Like you meet someone who's just started parkour, they will not stop talking about it. Because this reimagining, suddenly everywhere has potential. Everywhere is interesting. Everywhere has the possibility that you can have this kind of tactile relationship with it. And you get this sense of belonging. Because when you're training, it has this, very mindful aspect of it because believe me if you're walking on a railing it's not a mindless practice it's not about sets and reps you are in the moment you are present and it demands and commands that and you give it that so there's this emotional mindful 
kind of connection that happens, which feels amazing because we spend so much of modern life not in that connected state, not being particularly mindful. And so suddenly there's this thing which is interesting, physical, challenging, and yet you only go to do things that are kind of, you know, like a within or just out of your comfort zone. So the things that people around me were doing weren't frightening me because there was no way I was going to go and do them. It, it was kind of like, well, I'm not scared of something I'm never going to do. Why? It has it has no impact on me. But give me a challenge that's doable. Maybe not today. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe in a, maybe in a few months' time. But those are the things that speak to you. And then different people with different styles of movement will be drawn to things. And then when you're with other people, then you kind of go, I would have never even seen that. Wow, you're, you're going to go from there to there and then around there. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, their background's climbing. So they're really more about that. Or their background is basketball or, or track and field. So they're going to be more about that. And Or my background's none of that. So I'm going to be more of this. And And then you just get this melting pot of ideas and potential or you think something's not possible and then one person kind of does it in an interesting way and then someone adds something else on and then you get this jigsaw puzzle so so i end up doing parkour and but i'm filming it at the same time so i'll pause and just see if you have any questions about that before i go to the next well no (laughs) i i don't know that i have any questions about that but that's just a fascinating story i mean because you you had said that um, what did you say you were scared of everything you had spent Mm -hmm. 20 years just collecting fear you weren't physically in touch with your body you weren't physically in shape you're what 30 30 something and you're around these kids are doing these amazing feats and it just seems like you were an unlikely candidate very very creative and i think maybe it's that creative side and that adventurous side that's kind of sucking you in here is what it sounds like because like you're saying this is all unstructured and there's these kids with different backgrounds bringing different talents and different mindsets to reimagining these landscapes and creatively playing in them and then i love where you're talking about even if you're just on a i think you said just on a little balance beam or something how you're just so in that moment right you're in this flow when you're doing things like that and i think those of us that have you know the climbers and the surfers and then certainly the people like you're talking about the the parkour folks can all relate to that where there's you're not worried about you know what's for dinner you're not worried about your boss being met you're not worried about anything you're just in that moment and i think that that's something that's very special about these kinds of sports so that brings us up to where you are today basically you've had a very eclectic and very interesting background you found yourself through your love of cultural anthropology and filmmaking and the creative artistic side into this movement practice or these movement practices and here you are today now julie how old are you i'm 52 i'll be 53 in november okay just so so our audience has a frame of reference here and you're still practicing these movements today right and so you're a coach Mm -hmm. all these other things and i think this is a perfect transition i was looking at your i think you call it your maps program so Mm -hmm. you have the movement snacks and your age positive and your play parkour and the other ones your strong resting right your recovery piece why don't you talk to us a little bit about this coaching philosophy now 
And I think that people up to now may have been listening, thinking parkour, nope, not for me. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm 50, I'm 60. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. you know, for, to your point, I don't have, you know, I, I can't leap over a building. I don't mm-hmm. want to leap over a building, mm-hmm. but you approach this from a different perspective. So let's start maybe with your maps framework and then talk about who this is and maybe isn't for. So, yeah, so maps is basically what I was realizing was, well, number one, I'm, I'm no different than anybody else. And I'm actually like most people, which is people are busy. They have different interests. Like I'm not the like get up and go to the gym every day person. So I've always just been drawn to things that bring me joy. And at the same time, I don't shy away from challenge. So what I realized talking to other people was that, well, an understanding from my own experience was that like movement begets more movement. And so for a lot of people, this entry point is where people mess up. So making something harder, making a like more like, you know, killer workout or something like that, that's the easiest thing in the world to do. Any coach can make it harder. It's really not complex to add complexity to make someone work harder. But to get someone to do something, that's the art of coaching. And to get them to want to continue to doing something is the art of coaching. And I'm just not someone who responds well to shouting to someone who's like like a kind of like guilt or shaming or you should just be disciplined and stoic and turn up no matter what because it's like, are you serious? Like, do you have any idea what else I'm juggling in my life and you want me to do? Like, no, I'm not a wallflower. I'm, I'm, I find it very easy to say no, which was, which also made some of my parkour training very interesting for my coaches. So the it was kind of realizing that, well, nothing exists in a vacuum. Your body goes through everything all day, not just the time you're training or moving. So I realized that at at certain points in my life when I was very stressed, like I was emotionally stressed, I was financially stressed, I was hormonally stressed. The last thing I needed was a big physical stressor, but I loved moving. So this is where like the kind of like, oh, well, why not just a little bit? And also my dad passed away. And when I was grieving, all I wanted to do was walk. So as we go through life and as we age, you know, life, Life comes at us from a lot of angles sometimes and, and there's these side balls, these curveballs and sometimes like doing a lot of movement or what type of movement you choose to do can either deplete you or build you up. So I was at this moment where I was very, very stressed. Life was very, very challenging. And I remember one day going in, set up the barbell and to like do some lifting that would normally feel great. And I was just like, I, ca- I can't do this. And I drove from the gym and I just went back. I went to the park and I took my shoes off and I just went and stood on the railing. (laughs) And it was like, okay, maybe that's all I need to do today. So this idea of the dosage and the what and really looking at what kind of movements are going to soothe your nervous system, what are going to fry you, what's going to deplete you, how much do you need and on what days. And to know that you need to be able to take inventory. You need to take stock of What do I need today? And therefore, what are the options that are on someone's landscape of what they can do for that day? So born out of that was, which was a movement snacks are the result of rejecting the extremes. 
So rejecting the extremes of you need to do this killer workout and it needs to be hard and no pain, no gain. Like I can't think of the, anything worse than that saying. But then also on the, on the flip side of that, it's like when I'm stressed, I, I just need to lie down. It's like, well, no, that's probably not going to serve you very well either. Because sometimes when we're really tired, if we feel too tired to move, we definitely need to move. But what kind of movements we do are going to change how you feel afterwards. So the MAP system started off as, as movement snacks. So movement snacks are kind of like the adaptogen for the body. So a 10-minute movement snacks could be like two Tabata sets that are a killer workout. Or they could be a minute of breathing, two minutes of rocking arm and leg rolls, these kind of nervous system resets moves, which really soothe and let help you kind of let go of tension and then mobility. And also as we age, I mean, mobility is the gateway to movement. And if we don't keep our joints happy, nothing else is going to want to be happy either. So, I mean, sometimes like I, I don't have a training program at all. All I do is just, I start with movement snacks and that during my movement snacks, that tells me whether like, yep, that's it. We're good for the day. Or like, okay, cool. Now I'm going to go and do X, Y, Z. And that could go on for another two hours or it could be another 10 minutes or it could be like, nope, that's it. I'm good. I'm good. So it's all about kind of finding balance. So at the same time as kind of movement snacks was going on, as I was aging, I was aware a lot of the people around me would talk so negatively about their chronological age, about what was ahead of them, all these kind of things. So I was just like, well, now that's really weird. Like, and I remember thinking like, I have no idea what the 49 year version of me is supposed to do or look like or be or, but, but I know like, I, I'm not going to carry on not moving or having adventures or traveling or, or doing this. And yet not just my age, but I would hear things from people in their thirties and forties be saying things like, yeah, but I'm going to be 40 soon. So, you know, I really have to kind of get my trips and my travel and my adventures done now because I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to be able to do it afterwards. And I'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, this is insane. Um, so I was kind of aware of that and then kind of researched and went down that nice little rabbit hole and found the work of wonderful people like Ellen Langer and the, you know, the counterclockwise study, which really shows when you put your mind somewhere, the body will follow. So basically, if you're, when you're engaged in any physical activity, your mind and your emotions are also engaged. There is no separation ever. The body's always listening. It impacts stuff a lot. Otherwise, why are the double blind placebo test? Like it's it's there, it's happening. And I think we, we really tend to sway again to these extremes of you have people who are kind of like, they're so into the mindset and it's like, yeah, but you just sit on your ass all day meditating like, you, you really should go for a couple of walks as <laughs> well. You can journal all you like, but unless you move your body, you're not going to feel better anytime soon. And then there's also those people who it's kind of like a physical bypass for their wellness to just do nothing but train and never address any emotional mindset issues in their life. So we're always looking for balance. We're always looking for this kind of sweet spot. So there's movement snacks and then comes the this age positive mindset. And then the P is parkour and play because it was like that lights up the brain like nothing else and challenge and this constant transformation of self-development of getting to see who you are in the moment. Imagination doesn't age. Creativity doesn't age. 
so bring the body along as well. Like I, I don't really like the word exercise. I very rarely use the word exercise because it doesn't conjure up anything particularly joyful or fun or exuberant to me. It's, it's like, oh, it's a thing you have to do. It's like, it's like a graph, like it's like a spreadsheet. And I'm like, no, I want to doodle. And that's just my other people are very drawn to a, like a strict structure and they thrive off it. I'm very happy for them with the world. We need you. I need your help sometimes. But also they need my help. They need that little bit of freedom and that looseness and that adaptation and creativity to kind of just go for a walk and not know where you're going and see what happens and it'll all work out just fine. So to bring in these elements, because then you take away the limitations. You don't need equipment. You don't need a certain environment. You always have options. So you can do that. And then the final part of the map system is I, I just saw people completely overtrained all the time. And they would com have no value to this like lost art of recovery. It, it, you know, whether it's like, oh, you don't care about what you're eating or so, okay, you're having sleep issues right now. You're going through a divorce. You're, 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 I don't know, your job's coming out. And now you're telling me you're training for a marathon. Why would you do that? <laughs> How do you think that's going to work out? Do you, do you think your body's going to feel really great for that? Or maybe it's like, well, maybe it's not the best time for that. Maybe you should just start running if you want to run. But, oh, you want to do that as well? And you wonder why your hair is falling out. You're putting on weight. Your joints are starting to ache. Like, there's a lot of messages there. Our body's talking to us all the time. So strong resting, the art of recovery, is about finding the balance of, you know, if you train hard, you've got to rest harder. We, we get stronger whilst we sleep. We get better at the movements while we sleep. Nutrition matters more as we age, whether we like it or not. So what I realized is from both myself and through working with clients is you've got to have them all. Like you've got to have your ducks lined up in a row with all of them. And when you have the map system equally implemented, it sounds cheesy, but like you'll go in the right direction. You're, you're not going to plateau. You are going to improve, are going to be better. And, and you'll do it without suffering because also by the time people hit, you know, our fifties, people know how to push through and it has served them really well up to a point. And then you get to those points and it's like, well, I, I don't believe anyone is broken, but I see people who suffer more than they need to. And I see people who, as a result of that suffering and the pain that they kind of put on themselves, that they start to not believe that they can change direction, that they can turn it around and that they, they can and that they should be pain-free, fit, health, strong and happy in their 50s and in their 60s. And I mean, the research shows you can build muscle up until age 98. I don't know what happens at 98, but the research says it's 98. So like, <laughs> yeah. we have time. Right. We have time. Aging is, is, is just an opportunity for more research, for our own development, our own practices of like, well, what works, what doesn't work? And well, the thing that works, are you doing that consistently or just once in a blue moon? Or, you know, and then why aren't you doing the things that work? And why are you choosing the things that don't work? So nothing on its own is enough because everything is interconnected. Our training doesn't exist in a vacuum. Neither does our mindset, neither does our, our sleep. It's kind of, but when you start to really understand and bring them together, th there's no separation in any of those categories anyway. So that's kind of the system I do because, and it's sustainable because I'm not, like actually GMB just put out a really beautiful article yesterday all about auto-regulation. 
about the difference of you can do this extreme and you'll go like, way, and you know, so maybe at this one point you're achieving these incredible goals and then you're going to go right downhill. Or you can just do this beautiful progression of adaptation and maintenance. And, and also, again, this goes back to like, why not enjoy it? Like there's so many things in life that we don't have control of that, you know, will bring us sadness or, or stress and fear and anxiety. And so many things that we can control, we can mitigate those, which I'm kind of all for, which builds up our resilience, which takes us back to just be strong, to be useful, like have, have that buffer, have, have your immune system kick ass and be strong so that, you know, something happens in life and you, you need to go off and help a family member and you're not going to train for two months, you're still going to be really healthy and really strong because you've deposited in the bank of well-being. Like you're, you're not going to be overdrawn. You're not, you're not going to be running in a deficit because you have abundance in your health. And I mean, if the pandemic, hopefully, but you know, I think we know kind of it hasn't. <laughs> so so it is anything like health is freedom. There's, yeah, there's no shortcut. 100%. No shortcut. Yeah, I, and I love the way you talk about this healthy aging. And I mean, certainly it's not the common narrative, right? You reference friends in their 30s and 40s. And I've certainly had that same experience where they've got this fatalistic, it's all downhill from here. I've got this extra weight. I've got now I'm pre diabetic. I got these medicines I got to take. My libido's in the tank. And just, and it's this, this acceptance of that, this normalization of that, that puts folks when they get to our age, group and 50s, 60s, 70s in a much, much worse place. But that's not at all the life you're describing for yourself now in your 50s. It's this very creative, joyful, balanced life. I love how you talk about recovery as strong resting and and play and the idea of movement snacks. I've Obviously, I've never heard that before. I think that's a wonderful way of looking at things and as opposed to regimented workouts that some people may or may not. Personally, I love regimented workouts. Absolutely love them. Most people yeah. don't. That's a little weird. But I also enjoy play. I like climbing. I like surfing. I like doing other things outdoors. And it's just finding this balance of this thing that you will do consistently that brings you joy, that will make you this whole happy person. And I just love the way you represent that. So, Julia, as we're wrapping up here, why don't you tell us what's what's next for you? What's on the horizon? Oh, just more fun stuff. <laughs> more fun more stuff. Fun of course stuff. there is. I mean, in my own personal training and, and play and movement. It's just, I've been doing, I learned how to do a handstand last year, which was a really fun project with the wonderful Damien Norris. He did 365 days to a handstand, which was actually a really great example of how sometimes our movement journey and our strength journey is just a practice of delayed gratification and trust. Mm -hmm. Because I, I didn't know how, you know, I don't know how to train a handstand. I, that's not my thing. It's not what I do. And so I, he would just, you know, he shared it online. Now there's a YouTube channel, you know, on his YouTube channel, you can just like go and so just be like, oh, okay, do this. Like, okay, okay, I'll do that. So what started as like three one minute planks every day is now a 10 second handstand, which is beautiful. So I'm, I'm kind of playing with handstands. I'm going to be hopefully surfing a lot more this summer. I haven't surfed for a few months and I want to get back in the water, which is very exciting. Just more movement. And oh, what's really exciting is the follow-up to Born to Run, the book Born to Run 2. Chapter four is about movement snacks. So 
this idea that people, a lot of people who are, you know, even active in some way, they're, they're not 360 degrees strong. They're very linear. And yet, but we don't right. do life in a straight line. And so that's been really nice to work with Chris and Eric and, and Jared on that. So I think Born to Run 2 comes out in December. And from then I'm just, yeah, so I work with clients one-to-one. I don't do any group online anything or because I really want to help people find their own individual movement culture. So someone like you who's going to thrive on those workouts, like amazing, great. We find like your thing and then we dial that in. And then, so what my thing is my thing. I'm like, go get your own story, get your own movement culture. Like you, like you can look at mine if you think you're kind of like me and that might work for you, but let's work out what's going to work for you because you're the only one living your story and, and your life. So yeah, I worked with people one-to-one on that. I have a lot more car camping and some adventures coming up. I love spending time in Baja, on the Baja Peninsula in Mexico. What else is happening soon? Maybe a trip to Yosemite soon. That could be quite nice. So yeah, just just a lot of movement. I mean, climbing, playing, a lot of movement, yeah. hanging out right. outside, yeah. a lot of eating, a lot of resting, a lot of time in the hammocks, some good books, connecting with good people. And another thing that I think is really important that's been really good for me as well in the mindset is I have a shared gratitude practice that I do, and I've done for three years, and that's every single morning, myself and a few friends. We send a text and you write down three new things that you're grateful for. And it's, it's like a, a muscle. It's a neural pathway. It's something that, so three years in, it's, you know, you're not now like going, Oh, my resources, roof over my head. Duh, 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 duh. Like you're really right. getting, it then becomes this kind of daily practice of like, Oh, in the last 24 hours, what, what am I really grateful for? What happened then? And you spend your day being aware and looking and kind of registering these magical moments that are, are positive, whether it's like, you know, maybe you're, you're tired or grumpy and then you go into a store and the, the hello or smile or someone or someone, someone lets you in the queue or like your life just becomes, you start to notice things in a, in a more gracious way. So kind of just living with grit and grace and gratitude and, and play and loving life really it sounds cheesy, but really just yeah just more movement projects more fun more play just there's so much to do so much to be grateful for yeah yeah i love it absolutely love it so julie how can people connect with you what's the best way for folks to learn more about you and potentially work with you so my website is julieangel.com and on there you'll find i have two free resources for people to enjoy so i have a free move more course and there's a free uh movement snacks pdf that you can download which connects to videos that will kind of give you a, a an intro into what is this thing she's talking about? So just for you to kind of go and play with. And then I'm on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, Julie underscore angel underscore PhD, I believe it is. And I have a YouTube channel, which I will put more content on at some point. So yeah, reach out. And I regularly run kind of five-day challenges and, and things like that. So people can kind of get a taste of like, what is she talking about? What? What does that mean? What does that look like? So come and give it a go and send me a message and connect and let me know if you have questions and yeah, try out the, get the movement snacks guide and see what you like, see what your body says, because it's always talking.
And folks, I will drop all of Julie's social links as well as a lot of the um, things that she's talked about. I'll put those, all those links into the show notes so you can find that there. Julie, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing all of your story, your knowledge, your wisdom, and certainly your passion with us. You are a wonderful ambassador for healthy aging, and I wish you all the best in all your future endeavors. Thank you, Kevin. And, and likewise, I really appreciate the opportunity today. Wish all your listeners well. Okay, folks, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. You can find all the links to the resources we discussed in this episode over at silveredgefitness.com slash episode 121. And you can continue the conversation over there as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments on today's show. I also want to let you know that if you've enjoyed this podcast, I have other free resources over at silveredgefree.com. I just recently added a guide on optimizing your metabolism that has been very popular. And just this week, I added a guide to help you get your first pull-up in six weeks. So feel free to head over there and download anything that looks useful to you and your health and wellness journey. I really appreciate you spending your time with me today. And until next time, stay strong.